0: Welcome to episode 25 of Foreign Correspondents, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This episode marks a big milestone for the podcast. That's right, it's our one-year anniversary. Hard to believe it's been that long, but in that one year, the podcast has far exceeded my expectations. The podcast now has a modest but steadily growing listenership. It's given me a way to have deep conversations with fellow journalists and also to reconnect with old colleagues and friends that I've gotten to know over the course of my career. I've also been increasingly hearing from listeners, particularly other journalists, whether it's by email or on social media, which is great. We're well on our way to my real goal, which isn't to make a bunch of money or become some podcasting juggernaut, but to build a community with more of an open conversation about how journalism is made. I look forward to continuing to grow this community for another year and expanding to all sorts of new geographies and publications. There are some exciting things on the horizon, and hopefully soon I'll be doing my first podcast cross-promotion, so look for that. In the meantime, as this is a community, please do not hesitate to drop me a line with any feedback. You can reach out by email at foreignpod at gmail.com. Message me on Twitter at, at @foreignpod or leave a comment on Facebook.com ForeignPod. I also want to thank some people quickly. I first thanked them at the very end of episode one, but I think they had already listened to beta versions of the podcast, so they were unlikely to have heard it. So here we go. Thanks to Andrew Keefe, who gave me the message, stop talking about it, and shut up and do it, that I really needed to make the podcast a real thing, as well as for giving me detailed notes early on. Thanks to Benedict Bernstein and Bentley Ferena for early feedback and help. An enormous thanks to all my guests, but especially my first guinea pigs, Paul Karsten and Noman Merchant. And most of all, thank you to my wife, Bibiana, for her patience with me spending countless hours recording and editing the show, for endlessly allowing me to bounce ideas off of her, for doing all the Photoshop work, and making sure I don't do anything stupid. I realize this is a lot longer than my usual pre-show introduction, but here's one more thing I can't help but mention. I want to highlight that one of our podcast alumni, good friend of the show, Brian Rosenthal, won a Pulitzer earlier this month. It was for a New York Times story we touched on in the episode, investigating New York's taxicab industry, uncovering a deeply flawed system that allowed predatory lending practices and even drove some drivers to suicide, among other issues. So big congratulations to Brian for a job well done. I highly recommend you go back and listen to his episode, which is episode number nine. I really learned some things from that conversation that continue to inform my reporting. Also, very appropriately, it just so happens that even before he won the Pulitzer, he came up during the conversation in this week's episode. Normally, I might cut it out, but it's funny now with the knowledge that he has won the big award. I won't spoil what we say, but let's just say I think now that he's won the Pulitzer, maybe he can kick back and relax a bit. Although knowing Brian, he'll keep working just as hard. So now, on to our guest. This week, I spoke to Megan Cropot, a courts reporter for the Chicago Tribune. She's the archetypal shoe-leather journalist. She's out where the news is, whether it was on the overnight police beat or now at her desk in the courthouse. We went to college together, and I think she's really been living the dream I think many of us dreamt about when we were student journalists going to school so close to Chicago. Since we went to college together, you'll hear the prerequisite references to The Daily. We're talking about the student-run Daily Northwestern, which we use as a shorthand but never really explain. I think two things should really stand out from this episode. First, we discuss what I guess you would say was her lack of confidence early on as a student and in her first jobs as a journalist. I didn't know Megan all that well, so I truly had no idea she felt that way. I always remembered her as being one of the best at the student paper, on top of her game. But I think her feelings are all too common for young journalists, who can find editors and the whole enterprise intimidating. The fact that I had no idea she felt that way goes to show... Even if you're not feeling so confident, no one probably notices. Fake it till you make it, you'll get there. Second, the overnight cops beat in a major city like Chicago calls to mind certain images, at least for me. It's the stuff of hard-boiled noir stories. It's a reporter driving around listening to police scanners till dawn, reminding you of the movie Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal. It's a tough beat covering tough cops and tough firefighters that involves a lot of violence, and you would think it would call for a tough-for-callous reporter. I'm not saying Megan isn't tough, but she really approaches it in a sensitive and thoughtful way. She's not in the business of misery porn, and there's some real civic-minded reporting going on here. Anyway, before I spoil it, better to hear it directly from her. So without further ado, here's my interview with Megan Cropot, a courts reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Just to warm up, if you could set the scene a little bit, what time is it? Where are you? And tell us a little bit about what the past week has been like at work.
1: Okay, so I'm in my apartment in the Bridgeport neighborhood of Chicago. The neighborhood, the mother of mayors, they call it, because it's old school. Something like five of Chicago's mayors have all come from Bridgeport. It's the home of the Daly family. It's, you know, some Chicago history stuff. I am in bed because my apartment is very small, and I don't have a real office or anything like that. God, the past week at work, it's been... Chaotic. I mean, the past month-ish at work has been chaotic. It's like there's just a fire hose of news happening on every single beat. There's nothing that this virus hasn't touched or affected in some way. So I cover criminal courts and criminal justice at the Tribune, mostly centered on the Leighton Criminal Courts Building, most colloquially, I guess, known as 26th Street or 26th and Cal. It's believed to be the busiest single courthouse in the nation, (laughs) something like 36 felony courtrooms. It's right next to the Cook County Jail, which is the nation's largest single-site jail, I believe. Even in quiet times, it's a very busy beat, but now everything's kind of out the window. So I've been doing my best to stay on top of it from my couch, but also in the past week, I've had to go into the courthouse looking like a bank robber with a mask over my face (laughs) to look at court records and and check in on things that I can't do remotely.
0: Did you write any stories in the past week and what were they out of curiosity?
1: Yeah, let me just think because it's been a lot. A lot of the focus lately has been on the virus at the jail, which as I just said, it is the largest single site pretrial detention facility in the country. And as you can imagine, there's an enormous amount of concern about the spread of the virus at the jail. It's very rapid. It's more than 200 detainees at last count, and I'm sure that's changed since last I checked in on it. There have been two people who have died, believed to be related to COVID, two detainees who are in custody of the jail when they died after being diagnosed with COVID. So that's been a big focus of my reporting. And it's fascinating to me because this virus has sort of changed the public safety calculus, right? Just Mm -hmm. as a reminder, obviously, people who are in jail rather than prison are awaiting trial. They have not yet been convicted. If they're being held, then it's supposed to be because their release would pose a risk to public safety in some respect. But what happens when public safety is better served by a much, much emptier jail? Everything's just kind of on its head. And that's been an interesting line to watch this system walk, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know here in Brazil, the largest... Drug gang, the first capital command, you know, it's organized crime. They have like a team of lawyers and stuff like that, and they've been pushing for getting a bunch of their people released on grounds that it's better for public safety and these people's health is in danger. But I mean, these guys, many of them have done very horrible things, you know, so the prosecutors are fighting back against it. But from a public health perspective, Maybe there should be emptier jails. But and at least in Brazil, I don't see them giving any ground to releasing people. Have they shown any sign of budging in Chicago?
1: Yeah. I mean, the jail is at its lowest population in memory, basically. There was a big push to do what they called expedited bail reviews for about a week. They shut down almost everything related to the court system almost everything. You can't go down to the courthouse and get married, for example. All jury trials are suspended until further notice, basically, because it's not safe to have 12 people asses to elbows in the jury box anymore, right? So it's all on hold except for bond court because people are still getting arrested and you can't just hold them without a bail hearing. And these emergency courtrooms who are open, it's just two or three courtrooms open at a time that are mostly hearing bond reviews. But for a week, the presiding judge opened up way more courtrooms up to, I think, 11 or 12 at a time. Specifically, just to hear bond reviews, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And as a result, something like 650 odd detainees were released just within that Tuesday to Friday time span. And the efforts continue. There's still thousands of people behind bars. And I don't know, we're just going to see how the next month or so plays out. You know, you mentioned the people in brazil who are locked up who have very serious charges right obviously in chicago you've got plenty of people locked up on violent charges i would note also that the two detainees who died of covid or presumed covid both were convicted sex offenders which doesn't exactly make them particularly sympathetic in the eyes of the public right i don't know i i've been finding it a fascinating wrinkle on this beat.
0: Have any hearings been moved online or anything like that? Or
1: how yeah. are you doing
0: some of this remote work?
1: They're supposed to be switching to entirely online hearings by midweek this week we'll see if that happens they've been phasing it in which is sort of interesting like you can go to the courthouse and just watch bond court on zoom from a separate room which is really strange (laughs) you know they've got the judge in one room they've got the court reporter in another room they've got the detainee at the jail they've got the public defender in their office it's really wild I can't believe Zoom bond court is a thing.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. And and then we'll we'll get a bit more into your job later on. So the first part of the interview is taking us to how you got to where you are today. So we take a pretty holistic approach And start way, way back at the beginning. If you could just tell me where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like and what your family was like and kind of your early education years, especially if there was a certain point where you started to take an interest in journalism.
1: Sure. Okay. Well, way, way back, I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, but my family moved about three and a half hours north of there. When I was like kindergarten age, to a small ish city called Idaho Falls, Idaho. You know, it felt like a small town. It felt sort of rural, I guess. Though, if you look at the numbers, I mean, it's like 50,000 people in that town. Mm-hmm. At least when I was growing up, very white, very conservative. My parents always made an effort though to try and take us on vacations to bigger cities to try and make sure that we were getting a good range of experiences even though we lived in a very isolated we lived in a bubble basically and they always made sure that we subscribed to the newspaper for some reason what was really big for me growing up was like my family's newsweek subscription i was really big in newsweek as, as a little kid I think it was just growing up in that kind of bubble and having this portal to the outside world where bigger things were happening became really important to me. I think, God, I must have been... Probably in like my sophomore year of high school, I want to say, started thinking like, oh, you know, I could go out and do this for a living. Like maybe this is my ticket out of Idaho Falls, Idaho. I started Mm -hmm. working for the high school paper and I remember this so clearly. And this is going to be real cheesy. I'm sorry. There's no getting around (laughs) it. It's going to be real fucking cheesy. Um, But I started writing for the school paper, which came out like once a month or something like that. The Tiger Times. And my Mm -hmm. first assignment was to cover like a local talent show where the big draw, I don't know if he was the host or something like that, but the big draw was that there was going to be an American Idol contestant who was hosting or going to be there. And it was a really big deal. Some guy who like came in eighth on American Idol or something like that. (laughs) But I went and they let me backstage to talk to this guy. And I couldn't tell you his name or what we talked about or anything like that. But the feeling of being able to go in and having this pass to just talk to people and go places that were otherwise inaccessible and ask all kinds of questions, it just felt so energizing, right? It was this electric feeling. I was like 14, 15 years old and I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. This is it. Mm -hmm. It just, it felt right.
0: That makes and sense to me. I mean, that's certainly more than anything I ever reported on for my high school paper, which I think was a similar outfit, probably came out kind of <laughs> irregularly, like maybe once a month. The highlights for me were like interviewing our school principal and things like that. I, I didn't even get any eighth place uh, American Idol stars. Do you have any brothers and sisters? And do, you, do did any of them or your parents or anybody do anything related to writing at all?
1: No, no one in my family or sort of immediate circle was in this field or, or anything really similar. I have a little brother who is fantastic. He's a doctor. He works in the DC area in a hospital there, kind of worried about him. And then uh-huh. I met a little sister in college studying biology. So it's much more of a like science-oriented family than a writing-oriented family, I guess you might say.
0: Interesting. And it sounds like everybody left Idaho Falls. Are your parents still there?
1: No, they moved. Once I was in college, they moved to a small town in Northern Idaho. I haven't actually been back to Idaho Falls since. It's been, oh God, it's been probably 10 or 12 years since I was back there. And I'm sure if I went back there now, I would be like, oh, this is fine. This is charming. But like when you're like a shitty little impatient teenager, trying to get out and see the world, you'd be like, this town is terrible. i got to shake the dust
0: off my feet and get
1: (laughs) out of here, you know?
0: So yeah, it sounds like the kind of place that, I mean, maybe I have the wrong impression, but was it an anomaly that you would leave a place like Idaho Falls and go to a place like Northwestern? Or were there other people doing that? Or how did you get turned on to that?
1: It was a bit of an anomaly. I mean, I wasn't the only person in my graduating class to go outside the region, But there weren't that many of us. A lot of folks went to school in Idaho, Utah, that general area. But I will say a lot of people in my general generation still left Idaho Falls. I don't know if it's just a generational thing or what, but even if they stayed within the region, they got out of town. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said earlier, my folks did their best to take us on vacation to bigger cities and give us a taste of the world. And when I was probably 10 or 11, we went on vacation to Chicago for a couple of days, like just tagging along with my dad on a work trip. Mm-hmm. And even as a little kid, I was like, this is fantastic. I love this town. <laughs> we went to the top of the Sears Tower. I still remember
0: that. Sure.
1: <laughs> Rode the train. I'm sure I'd never seen real public transit before, right? But it was just fascinating. It was like, oh, this is a city. Like this is a real ass city. And I like it. So that connected. Once I decided I wanted to get into journalism, I was like, hey, there's a really good journalism school right outside this city that I decided I loved when I was 10. So try and apply. And I remember very clearly on that first week, they had some big assembly for the whole entering class. And whoever was speaking was like, we have students here from all 50 states. I was like, oh, that's how I got in.
0: (laughs) Not many
1: people applying from Idaho, I guess.
0: So you go into the journalism school. I mean, I imagine the fact that it's considered one of the best in the country, if not the best, probably factored in a little bit too. How did you find Northwestern once you got there and the education?
1: It's tricky because... I feel like I don't naturally or or did not naturally have much in the way of like hustle. You know what I mean? Like, huh. and I promise I'll get to the point here to and actually answer your question. I was always a very like good student, do all the homework, get the good grades, follow directions, blah, blah, blah. And that will get you in the Northwestern, if you're lucky, right? But doesn't really prepare you for how to kind of advance yourself in the real world, right? How to advocate for yourself, how to be creative, how to hustle, right? How to really get the most out of whatever you're trying to do. Right. Um, so it took, honestly, like just in the past, like five years or so for me to really feel like I've hit a groove that way and for me to grow a backbone. So a lot of college Despite having some really great professors and some really great opportunities, I feel like I was maybe too shy or too maybe naive to really take advantage of it in the way that I should have. I didn't really network. I didn't really know how or know that I should. I I, I, know I regret a lot of that because the habits that i grew up with and that had served me well of like keeping your head down putting a nice face on doing all the homework and doing the extra credit that's nice enough for high school but in the real world you got to be a lot more nimble and you got to be a lot more assertive so like i said i don't know that i really got as much out of my education as i should have now that said god i loved working at the daily i learned so much there Noman Merchant, who I think you had on the show.
0: Yep. Uh, My first guest.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think he was the city editor when I was a freshman. And I don't know why he put two freshmen on the Evanston City Council beat, but I was like, I want to do the hard news first off, like get me in there, put me on city council. And he was like, yes, here, an 18-year-old from Idaho Falls, Idaho, go cover city council. And it was great. I learned a lot. Like, I I kind of don't think that journalism can really be taught in a classroom setting, right? Maybe that's just me being obstinate or something, but I don't know that it's something you can sit at a desk with a bunch of your fellow classmates and just learn as if it's algebra or something. You got to be out there. You gotta actually try and do it and fall on your ass a million times before you get anywhere. I learned a right. lot from the yeah. daily
0: yeah the daily was great. I wasn't a journalism major. I took like three classes. I learned everything from The Daily and various people keeping me involved. Noman definitely kept me involved. When he was city editor, I was assistant city editor or something. <laughs> and we'd have those morning meetings and I'd be hung over and pull my laptop into bed and come up with a bunch of ideas and run there ten minutes late and that. <laughs> was, but he kept me in it, and you know, by the time I was a senior. I was an editor when he was managing editor. And yeah, no, it was a good time. And I I remember when it was you and Danny Yadrin who were the city hall reporters. And I remember being at one of these daily parties and when it was announced and you guys were like the hot shot next... (laughs) <laughs> class reporters. And I remember you guys just beaming at this party. Okay, you were so <laughs> proud and it seemed like such a big deal. I mean, it was certainly <laughs> more than I'd ever bitten off at the daily.
1: God, it was but. a huge deal. You're right. I was like, this is the big time. This is
0: my chance. And so, yeah, for some reason, I always kind of associated you and Danny together as like this kind of Woodward and Bernstein type pair. I don't know if that's (laughs) actually accurate at all, because I have these strange perceptions because you must have been a year below me. So I was a sophomore and then I go off and study abroad and I come back as a senior. So I was always confused what class people were in, what was really going on with people. Like I just had these associations that kind of stuck in my head. And could I really tell you you what you did after that at The Daily, I I couldn't. And um, (laughs) so how did things end up for you? Did you work at The Daily all four years? Did you become an editor? What happened with that?
1: Yeah, I was on the city desk. And then I believe I was city editor. And then I was one of the managing editors that last quarter of my junior year. And then there was some political stuff that I didn't quite grasp, and I was dealing with personal shit my senior year, and it just kind of got to the point where I needed to take a break from the daily. It was such a great experience while it lasted, though. Like It felt... For all the world, like a real newsroom, right? Everyone's there trying to hustle. Everyone's spending late nights trying to get the paper out. That was some formative stuff for me. I'm sure it was for a lot of people there. My roommates used to call me the absentee father of the family because I was always (laughs) like coming in at like 1130 midnight 1 a.m. four days a week because I was working such long hours at the paper.
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely we've sang the praises of The Daily on this podcast so far. Certainly Noamon has, and I know it was very formative for like Brian Rosenthal, who I talked to. Oh, yeah. How's Brian doing? He seems to be doing well. He seems to be doing well, stuck in his apartment. I mean, he's at the top of his reporting game, but probably is at the point where he needs to learn to relax a little bit. (laughs) We were emailing about whether he should get a cat and he ultimately decided against it, but I think it could do him some good. But I don't know. Everybody spent a lot of time together at The Daily, but I would say I actually don't know that much about most of the people at The Daily. And I don't (laughs) know why that is. You know, Noman was a close friend of mine, but do I really know what was going on with you during college? Not really. Some people I had classes with too. But anyway, you always struck me as, really knowing what you were doing. And so I was surprised to hear that you say now that you didn't know to push and things like that. I mean, did you do a lot of journalism internships? And how did you get into your first job? Did you have internships that set you up for that? or?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it was actually through the Daily. Another Daily staffer had done an internship with the Chicago Tribune editorial board and just suggested that me and a couple others apply I had written some, I'm sure looking back, it would be a, like a god-awful column about the Evanston pension crisis or pension issues, which I think was a major pet issue of some of the editorial board folks over there. I think that probably tipped it. It was basic research stuff, part-time, some like administrative work, filing, that kind of thing. But my God, I would have scrubbed toilets at the Chicago Tribune, Right.
0: <laughs> right.
1: So that was my senior year. And then I went and did like three weeks of an internship in Pennsylvania before they called and said, hey, we've got an opening for a full-time editorial assistant here. And I applied for that and turned right back around and went to Chicago. So
0: where where were you in Pennsylvania?
1: It was in Harrisburg, the state capital. I don't know if they still do this, but back 10 years ago, they had basically an intern for the Legislative Correspondents Association. So I think it was five or six news outlets that shared space in the press room at the Capitol. And the intern would do two or three week stints with each of these newspapers or websites, which that was fun as hell, too. I kind of wish I had the opportunity to see it through and maybe it would have set me on a different path. But I mean, this was 2010. The journalism climate, the economic climate, the job climate was not great. And Everyone there was like, we totally understand. This is a full time job with benefits in your industry. You need to go grab it.
0: So I did. I don't think you missed out too much on Harrisburg. I got a job offer there to work at something called, uh, I want to say Capital Wire or State mm-hmm. Wire or something like that. And I went there and I visited Laura Olson. I don't know if you know her, oh, but she yeah. was a year older than me. And, you know, they wanted to pay me like $27,000 a year. And I saw kind of, I don't know, it, it seemed pretty depressing living in Harrisburg on like <laughs> no money and things like that, that I was a bit like, I turned down the job and I got an extremely angry email from the editor. Ooh. My parents were livid and I got a job offer, thank God, a week later at the Myrtle Beach Ooh. Sundays. Otherwise, I would have been me. But in general, I wouldn't sing Harrisburg's praises. So you get to go back to Chicago, which is on a completely different level level as a city, as Harrisburg, but I'm, I'm surprised you were editorial. So you were doing research for editorials and not reporting.
1: Yeah, it was the opinion section, research, some basic interviews, that sort of thing. A lot of it, I'm speaking now about the full-time job that I took there that called it the editorial board coordinator. A lot of it was administrative assistant type work, too. I was answering phones and sending faxes and coordinating scheduling for visiting dignitaries, that kind of thing. You know, I made the coffee in the morning. This was entry-level stuff. And it was in the opinion section which it was never really the field that I felt compelled to go into. I mean, I always wanted to be a straight news reporter. But again, for God's sakes, it's a foot in the door at the Tribune. Right. I didn't want to pass that up.
0: It sounds like you must know the Tribune organization inside and out by now. Because what I thought you did right out of college is work for Red Eye, but obviously there were a couple steps in between. So how did that all happen?
1: Well, kind of like I was alluding to earlier, I'm very glad that it didn't come off this way if you didn't get this impression, but I promise you it's true. (laughs) It took me quite a while to figure out how to advocate for myself and how to hustle and how to operate in a way that would actually get me where... I wanted to go, if that makes sense. In the real world, no one's going to be like, oh, congratulations, you got a great report card, so we're going to advance you to the next grade. That's not how it works. You got to right. grab it for yourself. So, I mean, I would say that I probably stayed in that first editorial assistant job for longer than I should have. It was like two and a half years. In the meantime, I think I went on a couple interviews internally for suburban reporting jobs, more that kind of thing. And God, I just bombed. I like huh. bombed those interviews. They were not good, <laughs> and I was not hired. But so Red Eye, which does not really exist in its former form anymore, but back before smartphones were a thing, and you know this. I'm just like for listeners who might not.
0: Yeah, please do tuned
1: into what Red Eye is or was. So this was, I think it was launched like the mid 2000s. I want to say. The idea is that if you can target college students and young adults with a free commuter paper, then they're going to want to graduate to the main Tribune and like keep that as a habit as they get older. Red Eye was the Tribune's free daily commuter paper aimed at The Young Folks, lots of pop culture stuff, but also some news and sports. And it was all under the umbrella of the Tribune, but it was its own imprint, I guess you might say. So I got a job there on the copy desk, actually. After I was an editorial assistant, mostly, I think, because I had written just off and on for them while I was still doing the editorial assistant gig. I was a young person and a Tribune employee, so they didn't have to pay me any more to write for them.
0: Did you um, seek that out or did somebody approach you or how how did that happen?
1: God, that's a really good question. Oh, Oh no. Here I remember. So I was trying to get into an actual reporting job, not just an editorial assistant. And I interviewed there for an opening for a reporter. I interviewed... Did not get the job, but as part of the interview, they said, pitch us some ideas, some beats, some whatever. And one of the things that I pitched in this post-economic crash world was, you know, you should have some personal finance stuff for the young people just starting out. There should be good personal finance reporting in your paper. And they didn't hire me as a reporter, but they came back and said, hey, if you want to start writing, of all things, a personal finance column, uh, (laughs) then please go ahead. And I was like, sure, might as well. So I think every week or every other week, I was writing about personal finance for Red Eye. I have not revisited those columns since. I'm sure most of them are very bad and should be obliterated from the (laughs) record.
0: (laughs) Still, that's uh, having a column of any sort when you're that young is an accomplishment.
1: And so then once a job came open on the copy desk, they kind of knew me. They knew my face. They knew that I could string a sentence together, barely, and hired me for a copy editing job. That was copy editor's hours, like Sunday to Thursday, 3 to 11. I was able to sort of transition off of that after about a year because I just was doing so much writing on my personal time, trying to get into the paper as much as I could. And probably the first instance of real backbone that I ever showed was saying like, hey, I am doing so much off the clock work. I am better to this organization as a writer than as a copy editor. Just make that my job. And they did.
0: Huh. Was there anything particular that triggered this? I mean, was it just the fact that you had been the assistant at the editorial board for years, then you were on the copy desk, that just at that point, it struck you that it wasn't going to happen unless you advocated for it or did something nudge you in that direction?
1: You know, I think I finally found a comfort level with talking to editors as if they are also human beings instead of all-powerful whatever. You know (laughs) what I mean?
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And, God, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know that there was one particular tipping point necessarily. I think I just looked at the kind of work that I was actually performing for them and realized that it had enough value, at least in my own view. I recognized, like, okay, I'm pretty good at this. If I'm going to actually do it and get better at it, then I need that to also be recognized I need a chance to do it full time. Something clicked and it was just like, this is the time I need to start really advocating for myself because I'm right. the one responsible
0: for doing that. And I definitely get that an intimidation factor or something. But thinking of editors as these kind of demigods that exist on a different plane of existence, whereas they're just people trying to do their jobs. And if you treat them like people, everything's going to go fine. But there's something as a young journalist about the way you view editors that can kind of uh, shake your confidence, I guess I would say. Oh, totally. Um,
1: I mean, I think that's just a natural response to a power imbalance, especially for young reporters you're just starting out. These are the people who might hold your paycheck, your career, your ambitions in their hands.
0: So what was your beat at Red Eye, or did you have a beat, and how long did you do that for?
1: Towards the end, I was doing a lot of cops and courts type of stuff, which I found really interesting. They sent me to Bond Court at 26th Street, which is my full-time beat for the Tribune today. Just very basic sit in and see if anything pops up that's worth writing about and try to to make a story out of it. I think I got to Red Eye just at the point when it was starting to transition away from its heyday, if that makes sense. A lot of people were leaving sort of the slow drift away from the newsroom without a lot of rehiring to replace, if that makes sense. I guess there's a lot of attrition. I think. You're seeing the fruit of that now where Red Eye doesn't even have its own website anymore. It doesn't have its separate newsroom. I think there might be one person left who is actually technically only a Red Eye person within the Tribune umbrella, right? So they just sort of let it taper off. And that makes sense if people are looking at their phones on the train instead of the commuter paper. But at a certain point, the writing was kind of on the wall. There were... At one point, five or six reporters, and then it was down to two. Like, I was one of the last two. Everyone else was just leaving. Oh, wow. And I was like, I got to find something else to do here. So the big leap for me was going over to the breaking news desk at the Tribune to cover the overnight shift.
0: Um, Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. I had done some breaking news work just sort of in an attempt to get my face known over there while I was at Red Eye. Like the breaking news desk always needed more people. So like every other Friday, I'd just go and cover a shift and see what popped up. And come to find out that one of those overnight shift reporters was leaving, there was going to be an opening. I put my hand up for it and got the job. It was completely eye-opening. It, this is going to sound weird because it was obviously physically and emotionally also very stressful and very draining. I mean, you're, you're seeing a lot of... Violence up close, but it was such a good way to learn how to be a real reporter, if that makes sense. There's no better way to learn the city. You have an enormous amount of independence because God knows, you know, there aren't really any editors on the overnight shift. Right. So I spent about two years driving around with a bunch of police scanners and a bulletproof vest and going to shootings, going to fires just getting to know the city, areas of the city that a lot of people tend to write off and don't get familiar with. i made an effort to get to know them, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What, What sort of hours were you working? What was the overnight shift?
1: It was 10 p.m. to 8 a.m., four nights a week.
0: Wow. And yeah, this is one of those classic things that uh, why I really wanted to talk to you is, well, you know, I went off to China and did all these weird things. I, I feel like this is the classic hard-boiled crime reporter thing Well, you can now talk wistfully about your days on the overnight police feet i mean i know that's the image of it and the reality is it's it's stressful and hard staying up overnight and you see a lot of gruesome things and you know there's the other side to it but it does seem like one of those classic reporter things that at least when i was at northwestern this is the type of stuff i imagined I would be doing. I I only did a limited amount of it in Myrtle Beach on the Saturday shifts, listening to the police scanner. And I'm glad I got that experience. But part of me feels like I think I missed out not doing big city crime beat, (laughs) chasing (laughs) police scanners and things like that. How do you feel about it now in retrospect? Was it a dream come true? Did it feel that way at the time? And yeah, how do you feel now in retrospect?
1: I'm enormously glad that I did it. I would not give up that experience for the world. I think it's informed almost every aspect of my thinking about journalism and my thinking about the city. I don't know. It was formative for me, I guess. And I think part of the reason that I was eager to take the job was not just because of what you're saying of like, this is the big city crime beat, right? That was obviously part of it. God, the violence in the city for a long time was the story in the city. Right. So an opportunity to cover that in a way where I also had a big measure of independence and a lot of autonomy and how I conducted myself. That's a great opportunity just to become a better journalist. But I felt like almost almost like a civic need to do that. Or I guess I'm not a native Chicagoan. Right. I've lived Mm -hmm. in the city for 10 years. I was in the suburbs for four years before that. But for a lot of people in the city, like unless you were literally born at the intersection of state and Madison, you'll never be a Chicagoan. Right. (laughs) And I was I guess I was very cognizant of not wanting to be like, oh, hey, guys, I'm just over here from Idaho. I'm a nice, pleasant white girl. And I really love Chicago. And Chicago is Lakeview and maybe Logan Square. You know, I didn't want to be that person. I felt an obligation if I'm going to be a citizen of this city and if I'm going to feel like this city is home to get to know every corner of this city. That was on a personal level, not just on a journalism level. That was important to me.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. And yeah, it's much different than a lot of people we know, like fanned out and you get a job in whatever city you can. But you move to these places, like I go to Myrtle Beach, you don't have that kind of civic minded mentality, but it's different when I mean, like you said, you went to Northwestern in Evanston, and then you move into Chicago, and you were somehow a part of this Chicago community even though it's a huge metropolis and that must feel a bit different you have more skin in the game to a degree but also just yeah you don't want to be this poser Chicagoan at the same yeah, time yeah
1: that's exactly it um, that's exactly it like um, I'm among to... the
0: most hardcore Chicagoans who are like fucking cops and like <laughs> firefighters like
1: exactly um, exactly You know, when they ask where you're from, it's a loaded question because they're expecting to hear an intersection or a parish and they'll judge you accordingly. So I generally just say like, you know, I'm from out west, but I've lived in the city for X number of years, that sort of thing. So I was on that shift from July 2015 to April 2017, and that included 2016, obviously, which was there was a, a really big spike in violence during that year. It also was... The city continuing to deal with the fallout of the Laquan McDonald shooting, which was a huge flashpoint. It was a very interesting time to be on that beat, I guess I should say.
0: So what, I guess, in particular in those two years made the biggest impression Mm -hmm. on you? Was it this Laquan McDonald? Uh, I I don't know the details of that.
1: I mean, we can go into that because I covered that trial. We can go into that a little later. I, I think there are moments that made individual impressions and that taught me a lot. But I think overall, here's the way that I approached violence coverage. The baseline, the very bare minimum is just looking at the numbers. Okay, how many people were shot overnight and where? Put them in a list, put them online. That's not the most responsible or nuanced way to go about crime coverage. One level up, and again, this is just the way I thought of it when I was on the beat. The level above that is if you can actually go and accurately convey what it's like to be at a crime scene, to live in a neighborhood, to lose a loved one, to react to what's going on around you. If you can accurately put that in a story, then that's something different, right? That's good. At the same time, that can lead to a lot of, and this isn't just the Tribune in particular, but just in general, it can lead to a lot of coverage that's kind of just pointing at something and saying, hey, look, this is really sad. Look at this sad thing over here, which obviously it's sad. What does coverage like that teach us? That sort of risks being like exploitative in a way.
0: Right, like, yeah. hey,
1: I'm going to jump into your neighborhood and, and you're really sad. And then I'm going to leave and go back to my own. You know what I mean? I, I yeah. think there's a way to do it respectfully. But I think if you try and take it a level above that and reveal something about a block, reveal something about a neighborhood, reveal something about a process that goes beyond how do I how do I put this?
0: More like systemic issues or
1: I guess systemic is one way of thinking about it. I think in the end what I was trying to tell were more along the lines of like neighborhood stories, if that makes sense. If you can take one instance of a shooting something like that, and bring some context to it. If you can find out what led up to that shooting, if you can find out what was going on in the block the week before, if you can find out who this person was, why they were there, what were they like as a human being, if you can point to an interesting response on the part of police, if you can capture something real about how the neighborhood is reacting, beyond just, like, color, I guess... If you can tell a story about a neighborhood or a family or a conflict that goes a little deeper, I think that is hopefully more
0: illuminating
1: than just sort of the basic crime coverage. Does that make sense?
0: Sure. Yeah, that does.
1: The goal, I think, is to for someone who lives in the neighborhood or for someone who works on that beat or from someone who like investigated that case, for them to be able to read your story and see some truth reflected back at them.
0: And I guess after doing it for two years, I could see how just thinking of the classic crime reporting and thinking of David Simon and stuff that, you know, after two years of doing this, I guess you could see how it has been violent, continues to be violent. Maybe I guess it could feel frustrating at some point that no difference is actually being made in this whole process this whole oh, cycle. How did you feel about that after 2 years? Did you feel like you were on a hamster wheel? Did you, <laughs> you know, were you getting anywhere? Were you making a difference at all?
1: Yeah, that I think you nailed it. It was and continues to be immensely frustrating because you get out there and you say I'm going to shine a light People are going to know the story is going to resonate with people and it's going to spark some kind of change. And while there has been some progress, just strictly, if you look at the numbers, people are still getting shot. Kids are still getting shot. It's interesting that you brought up David Simon because the whole point of The Wire and a lot of his other work is talking about the inherent inability of any of these systems to actually fix problems. And it's hard to see the effects of those problems up close and not want to just shake the entire city by the shoulders and say, hey, fix this. There are ways we can fix it, but it takes effort and it takes money and it takes a real will to make it happen. And bureaucracies just don't really function that
0: way. right? So what happens after that and do you decide to leave or does somebody get in touch with you with an opportunity or what's the next move and how does it happen?
1: So I was towards the end of that period getting really like physically burned out. Just something flipped a switch internally in the last couple months of doing that shift where I was just not physically healthy, staying up all night. I wasn't really sleeping. My eating habits were poor. I just felt like off. And so I was like, mm-hmm. all right, I, I can't do this forever. It's going to wear me down. And I came to find out that the criminal courts reporter was looking to move to a different beat. And so there might be an opening there. I talked to my editor, who talked to the managing editor, who kind of went through the standard procedure, I guess, of posting the job and interviewing. And I like to think of it as like I moved from the first half of a Law and Order se- episode to the second half, right? <laughs> yeah. Going from the police to the prosecution. Right. I think more than anything, like what I really wanted after nights was a beat, just some little corner that I could make into my own and really just own it. I didn't have much interest in being like a general assignment reporter or moving into that sort of arena. I wanted some kind of boundary, I guess, something where I could develop sources and really become the person, the go to for that area. And God, I got to tell you, covering that courthouse, it is wild. It is wild. (laughs) It's been three years now, and I'm still learning new things every day. I can't think of any one building except for maybe a hospital where you would find the entire range of human emotion just by walking down the hall. Complete joy, absolute despair, horror, sadness people being completely numbed out and ground down. And it's all under one roof and it's all happening quickly. And the stakes are phenomenally high. It's a fascinating place to be.
0: And after three years there, is it the sort of thing where, I mean, you must... Recognize all the faces, all the people, I mean, have been able to go really deep on sourcing and things like that, become part of the court ecosystem, I guess?
1: Yeah, I like to think so. And I think that's just a function of being there physically every day. I don't ever really work in the newsroom, I have an office in the courthouse because the courthouse is where the news is happening. I think I'll never stop advocating for this, and maybe it's old school, but I will never stop advocating strongly for solid, old-fashioned beat reporting. You have an area, you become an expert in that area, you give yourself the time to really speak the language, and that that's going to inform... Much stronger reporting than just saying, hey, go after this trial, go off to this crime scene, go cover this press conference. If you let your reporters develop a real grounding and an expertise, then it's going to show.
0: Definitely. As a beat reporter, I'll say it. I think it's a good thing as well. So the next part, let's talk about some stories. To start on, if there's a story you always wanted to do, but were never Mm -hmm. able to pull it off, you could never convince an editor, you could never prove it, (laughs) you know, something went horribly wrong while you were trying to do the story. (laughs) Does anything spring to mind?
1: Yeah. Okay. So first off, I want to say I'm still holding out hope in my heart that I can do this story, right? Um, So not to blow up my own spot there's a truly fascinating case that's been pending in that courthouse for oh geez a few years now it's a man accused of murder first degree he was caught on video beating a man to death on a CTA tracks so on the on the elevated train station tracks. Mm. He went to trial. He was convicted. And then his brother, who is a former federal prosecutor, stepped in to take over his defense and argued successfully that he should get a new trial. And his brother is taking over his defense. It has been some of the strangest court filings, strategies, I mean, really unusual stuff. This brother, who's the defense attorney, was filing motions that were strangely anti-Semitic. And like one (laughs) of them includes this really graphic description of a hypothetical rape scene for a reason I can't fathom. It got to the point where he actually had a restraining order against him such that he could not enter the courthouse his behavior became so bizarre that they got a restraining the brother, order brother, the against defense him. attorney. Yeah, the brother did. The defense attorney could not enter the courthouse. He got huh. kicked off his brother's case. The brother's case was sort of in a holding pattern for a while. Then the state appeals court came off and said, hey, you can't just unilaterally remove an attorney from a case that violates the defendant's right to counsel of his choice. So then the brother was back on the case, despite the fact that he could not enter the courthouse. And <laughs> in the meantime, The brother and his lawyer, well, both brothers, I should say, have filed all kinds of lawsuits alleging conspiracies. Basically, all the county stakeholders are conspiring against them to keep the brother behind bars. They're all hiding something. I mean, it is fascinating and really wide-ranging, and it just keeps turning all these really interesting little corners. I haven't figured out yet how to write about it because it just keeps getting bigger and bigger you know what i mean like the story has gone so far beyond just hey this is interesting a man is defending his brother against murder charges that's pretty interesting in itself and now it's just become huge and complicated and i'm still holding out hope that i can find a way to tell that story and i have dibs for anyone who's listening on it (laughs) nobody else gets to tell (laughs) this story I know that's not binding, but I think I've been on the beat long enough that I'm allowed to be territorial about my pet projects, you know?
0: So sometimes in court, things get covered blow by blow, day by day. You've definitely done some of that, I'm sure, with Jesse Smollett stuff. But Uh other things, I guess, is it more often than not, your editor wants one swing at a, unless it's of a certain profile, they want one swing at a story and that's it. They don't want you writing every month about this court case. They want you to just go write the one definitive piece and have that be that?
1: You know, it's a process of trying to balance the daily stuff against the longer, more in-depth sort of enterprise stories. That's been a challenge since as long as I've been on the beat, since there's so much daily stuff. I keep a calendar of, it's just a Google calendar, but there's probably 100 cases on there, maybe 150 that I'm following and trying to track each day, um, trying to figure out, okay, at the beginning of the week, is anything going to happen that's newsworthy in this case? What's going on in this case? There are cases, the higher profile cases, the editors do tend to want blow by blow every single month, every single status hearing, here's what's going on. That's definitely not the case for the vast majority of these, but I still feel obligated to keep track of them for when an interesting plea hearing might happen, when the trial might be starting. Even if there are any court filings that are illuminating, it's a juggle. That's for sure.
0: Wow. Yeah, 150, that's a lot to keep track of. But I guess the judicial system grinds away. Months go by between hearings. I imagine in your three years, there are some cases that span more than three years.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm tracking um, cases that date back to like 2010, 2011, that have not yet gone to trial, especially in Cook County. It is a slow, slow, slow process.
0: Yeah, wow. Cool. And then the next question is if you could then turn to a story that you did pull off, you did write, and execute that you're proud of, and just tell us about how the process worked from start to finish, from getting the idea to writing the thing.
1: Okay, so this was a trial last year. There was a shooting of an off-duty Chicago police officer and his friends. They were in a car just minding their own business, basically. And it seems to have been sort of a mistaken identity thing. And the prosecutor's narrative here is essentially that a group of Black men was fighting with a group of Hispanic men earlier in the night. The Black men came back and decided, we got to go find those guys. We got to find them. We got to mess with them since the police came and broke up the earlier tussle. So allegedly all the way through this obviously they went out trying to find this group of hispanic men and another man came up and said hey those are the guys you want over there in that car and it wasn't the guys in the car had nothing to do with the earlier tussle they just happened to be latino Hmm. so they came over and it's on video i believe they went and approached the car and shot and a couple people were wounded and the off-duty officer was killed So they charge all three men, both of the alleged shooters and the man who went and pointed out, hey, those are the guys you want. The man who was ultimately convicted of pointing out these other men is a homeless man named Jovan Battle. Ultimately, he's charged with the murder of a police officer. The stakes could not be higher, right? I mean, that is an extremely serious and a very high-profile offense. Whereas the other two defendants got lawyers, Mr. Battle decided that he wanted to represent himself in the murder of an off-duty police officer right downtown. So the term is uh, going pro se, like representing yourself pro se.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Once
1: I heard, I was like, my God, there's a story there. Who is this guy? Why is he doing this? What's going on? So not only did he begin to represent himself, he formally invoked his right to a speedy trial which meant that the prosecutors had 60 days to put a trial together or else they have to drop the charges because it violates his constitutional right. So the prosecutors are scrambling because they have to put together a trial in 60 days that normally they'd have years and years to prepare for. In the meantime, he's coming into court two, three times a week sometimes for status hearings, trying to figure out how to build his case, what's going on. Very eccentric sort of presentation I don't know. Something about him was really interesting to me, even besides just the straightforward facts of he doesn't have much education and he's defending himself against a murder. So ultimately, I gathered as much as I could find about him just from records, tried to find family, but was not really able to come up with much, tried to figure out his history just from what was available. And ultimately, I went and interviewed him at the jail for about an hour and tried to just answer the question, why is this the tactic you're taking? Why are you doing this? I don't know. I think if I'm just able to brag a little bit here, I think I was able to write about the situation in a way that respected him, but was also very clear about what was really happening, which was, he was basically doomed. Mm -hmm. Very little education. By his own admission, I believe, has had mental health issues. And then watching the trial, watching him try to convince a jury that he should not be responsible for this. I think part of it also was that the law, he was not accused of Shooting, He was not accused of ever having a gun or holding a gun or anything like that. Illinois law is written such that you are accountable for this murder if you participate in any way, regardless if you know whether someone's going to get murdered. Right. So he pointed out the car and said, those are the guys he was charged with murder. I would think that an experienced lawyer could present a case in a way that had a lot better chance of getting him acquitted. But he would not trust any lawyers with this case. And ultimately, he was convicted. And I believe for the pre-sentencing phase, he has gone back to the public defender's office. It was an interesting balance to try to strike in the writing because you don't want to just point at something and say like, hey, look, this guy's super crazy. What do you think he's doing? Ha ha, point and laugh. But you also need to be very real about what's going on, which is that he's basically doomed himself.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's a guy who... Basically, sounds like he had nothing before this, and it's kind of tragic in some sense that he's headed towards this inevitable ruin. What happened to the other two guys?
1: They're still awaiting trial. Like I said, normally the process takes way, way, way longer to play out. Basically, it only happened as quickly as it did for this third defendant because he dumped his lawyer and then invoked his right to a speedy trial, which started the clock
0: and were your editors immediately interested in this or was it a tough sell for the editors and did it immediately provoke a reaction from the readers or was it more of an uphill battle than that?
1: I don't remember having to do a ton of convincing to my editor. Actually, both of the direct editors who I've had during my time on the beat have spent a lot of time on this same beat. So they know the language, they know what's up. So there was an element of, yeah, people go pro se pretty regularly. There's got to be something more than that if it's going to be news i think the battle maybe this says more about me than it says about my editors but i think the battle is like trying to get enough space to write as long as i want to write if that makes sense like trying to get enough space to fully explore this and not have to kill any of the good quotes that i like
0: (laughs) right yeah Writing for a newspaper where space is jockeyed for and there's only one front page. How was reaction to the story? Do you think you were able to point at something bigger? So
1: I think what I took away from it and what I hope readers took away from it is that as it stands right now, the justice system is not really equipped to deal with mental health in a nuanced way. This comes through in a lot of different ways. For example, this gentleman, Mr. Battle, was given a court-ordered mental health examination to see if he was fit for trial, to see if he understood what was going on. But there isn't really a mental health examination to determine if you're fit to represent yourself. Within the system, the way it's set up and the way it's meant to work, the finder of fact is always supposed to be the judge or the jury. They are the ones who arbitrate and weigh evidence and determine truth from untruth, give weight to certain things and not give weight to certain things. They are the ultimate arbiters there, the triers of fact. And Mm -hmm. that's the way the system is built, which does not leave a ton of room necessarily for, for example, a psychiatrist or a psychologist to step in and say, well, in fact, what's going on in this person's head means X, Y, Z. The system isn't really set up to cede any ground To that kind of outsider, if that makes sense, to determine, I guess, right from wrong or truth from untruth. So that makes sense when you're dealing with people who don't have mental health issues, but when you do, you're sort of trying to fit the square peg into the round hole.
0: Okay, cool. Did you write a series of stories on that?
1: I wrote an initial sort of profile of the defendant, Mr. Battle, and then covered the trial, which lasted, I believe, about a week. I don't recall, actually, if I wrote from every day of that trial, but I sat in on absolutely as much of it as I could, which I try to for every trial that I cover. I think all the pieces matter, and if you're going to come up with a full picture, something that happens on a Tuesday, might not seem relevant on Tuesday, but then on a Thursday, it pops up and says, oh, that's why they said this on Tuesday. So advice to any reporters out there covering the court's beat, sit in on every minute of a trial, if at all possible. So I wrote an initial sort of profile and I wrote through the trial and I will cover his sentencing whenever that happens.
0: Cool. So, well, I'll get links to those so I can post them when I put this episode up oh, um, for people to check out. And who knows? Maybe by the time this goes up, there'll be sentencing. But who? I guess that's coronavirus might have disrupted that. So
1: yeah, uh, everything's shut down mostly until the uh, middle of May.
0: Uh, okay. And then I realized I forgot to ask about the union stuff. I was just going to say, I know from what I see from you on Twitter and things like that, that you're very active in the journalists union. I don't know what it's called. Is it called News Guild by you guys?
1: Yeah, Um, yeah. So the News Guild is the union that we are a part of, if that makes sense. The international union that represents newspaper workers all over the country and in Canada. For our purposes, we call it the Chicago Tribune Guild. So... That's our our name for the bargaining units in the Chicago Tribune and, and the suburbs and the design hub.
0: I presume you're pretty involved in that at this point. How did you get so involved in it and why do you think it's important?
1: So I actually was one of the first organizers. This was a couple of years ago. I think it's not a secret that the industry has faced a lot of challenges. It's a pretty precarious place to work. Right. A daily metro newspaper You know, in the 21st century, it's a precarious place to work. And what we were seeing, what I was seeing, a lot of attrition, so much just wage stagnation across the board, a lot of young talent leaving once they realized that they couldn't afford to start a family or buy a house or have sort of an ordinary like middle-class kind of existence on this kind of pay. The way I saw it, I wanted to be a part of something that could help make the newsroom sustainable, help create a climate where we can be secure in doing good journalism, help create the kind of newsroom where people not only want to stay in work, but they can afford to stay in work without having to rely on side hustles, where people can really build careers and be secure in that. You know, that used to be the case at the Tribune. That used to be the kind of place where you could build an entire career and be fruitful and it would be long. And that's not any kind of guarantee anymore. We saw an opportunity to step in and advocate for that as journalists. It's been an enormous amount of work, but it's also been enormously valuable. We're in so it wasn't our...
0: unionized before? No, like, no. no. Oh, I didn't know that.
1: This was the first union push. The Sun-Times was always a union paper. I mean, not always, but that was the union paper in town. The mm-hmm. Tribune, in my view, got away with not being unionized because for years and years and years, they would just pay you above the Sun-Times. Like, whatever the Sun-Times scale was, they'd bump up your pay. That does not happen anymore, <laughs> not by a long shot. So this was an organizing drive that started a couple years ago. We are now in the talks for our first contract, which has been, again, a very long process, but that's how it tends to work with first contracts, right? And now we just were informed a couple days ago that the company is proposing to cut union members' pay if they make above a certain threshold. So now that we're unionized, we can say, "Uh uh-uh, before you do anything like this, we need to see all the books. You need to be open and transparent about your financials because they can't do anything unless they prove to us that there is an urgent business need. So even though we don't have a contract, we have that protection and the right to potentially negotiate over any kinds of changes in wages, benefits, working conditions.
0: And I mean, I know that union organizing can get very ugly if you're trying to make a non-union place into a unionized place. How was it there? Were were people concerned about, you know, them fighting it tooth and nail, trying to get rid of the organizers, things like that? Or was it a bit more peaceful?
1: You know, the response from corporate was pretty anodyne, I guess. I will say it helped that we gathered overwhelming amount of support before we went public. So once we went public with the organizing push, we already had 85, 87% of the members on board willing to fight. It was a united front that we could present. I think they knew something was coming, but I don't think they knew that it was going to be that loud and that unified and that big. I like to think it sort of caught them off guard. Meanwhile, this was back when the LA Times was still under the Tribune publishing umbrella. The LA Times had won their union election overwhelmingly. And I believe it was a few months later that we went public. So I think they were reticent to try and launch any real anti-union campaign because they saw that it hadn't worked in the sister paper in LA. And they saw that there was already an immense amount of support within in the newsroom. So we didn't even go to an election. They recognized us voluntarily.
0: Oh, that's great. I don't know what the latest is with the Tribune. I obviously probably saw on God Knows last week tonight with John Oliver, something something about the cold trunk debacle <laughs> and the strange ownership you guys had. I mean, it has changed ownership since then. Is it on any more solid financial footing? And are the owners a bit more sane now?
1: Ooh. So, in November, I'm not sure if you're familiar with a hedge fund that's known as Alden Global Capital. They've often been labeled the destroyer of newspapers. The Post has been gutted. San Jose Mercury News has been gutted. And in November, it was revealed that they had bought up, I believe now it's up to 32% of shares in Tribune Publishing. So, they are now the largest stakeholder. There's a lot of talk that they plan to increase that stake once they're allowed to a little bit later this year. So that's what we're dealing with now.
0: (laughs) So yeah, it could be horrible. It could be, God knows, hopefully they've learned something than in the past. I mean, I've certainly read plenty of analyses of hedge funds or private equity going into papers, thinking they can run it a certain way. And it ends up going horribly for all involved. Like I don't even know that they really necessarily make much money off of it. So uh, maybe they've learned something, but maybe not. I imagine it's pretty worrisome if you work there.
1: Yes. It's a lot to deal with on top of jobs that are already very time consuming and stressful. I will say I'm extraordinarily glad that we organized when we did. I mean, obviously the union can't fix every single thing, but we have an avenue now where we can fight back and we have specific legal protections, even though we don't have a contract. That means that they can't come in and do anything unilaterally.
0: That's great. More power to you guys. Thank you. Um, So, yeah, the next part is the lightning round, which is faster paced questions. Do you feel ready? Yeah, let's do it. First is, what is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day, and it can't be the Chicago Tribune?
1: The New York Times, The Washington Post.
0: Sure. Is there anything you look at for work?
1: Oh, sure. I think the Chicago Reader, our alt-weekly here in town, does great work. There are some local crime-oriented blogs that always have some interesting perspectives, right? Stuff that I need to keep on top of just for beat purposes.
0: And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch for fun?
1: The Bon Appetit YouTube channel. Are you familiar with
0: this? (laughs) Somebody was telling me about it last night, actually.
1: It's like a hit of serotonin straight to my brain. It's like the most low-key, just enjoyable, soothing, goofy, oh my God, I want to live in that universe.
0: Yeah, I mean, is it like specific recipes or is it just anything about food?
1: Yeah, it's cooking, and they'll do little themed sort of shows. There's a big goofy dude who just ferments stuff, and that's his deal. One of the chefs does a show where she has to recreate from scratch snack foods. Like, I think the latest one was Cadbury cream eggs, and she had to figure out how to (laughs) make them from scratch. I don't know. It's just, it's really, it's so soothing in a way. I just, I love it.
0: That's cool. And then what's the best journalistic article piece, again, whatever medium that you consumed recently, and it can't be in the publication you work for?
1: Oh, man, I was going to go for the Tribune one. I'm trying to be a booster. Okay, well, I guess this is going to date the podcast, but all the New York Times reporting about the Red Dawn email chain. Have you seen this? No, what's that? This is basically, they found emails between public health officials dating back to basically when the coronavirus came on everyone's radar, emails between these high up public health officials, stakeholders, sort of showing how serious they knew it was from the very beginning and contrasting that with the actual federal response, which was, I think everyone knows by now, it was extraordinarily slow. It was really a dramatic difference there. And it's really sad (laughs) kind of knowing, oh, here are the people who are close to the subject discussing the subject, who know the urgency of the subject and Contrasting that with the actual people who set the policy was very illuminating.
0: And then is there any specific subject matter you read into that isn't related to your job?
1: I think there's nothing like really good science and environmental journalism. I don't think that I would ever have the chops to actually write it. But when you get really good boots on the ground, who can translate what's happening from scientific jargon into something that's not only legible, but really beautiful to read and really pleasurable. I admire that so much.
0: Any particular place you think does that well?
1: At the Tribune, our environmental reporter, one of them, just left for ProPublica. He was doing a whole series about the Great Lakes. That makes for great reading. I know I can't be a booster on here, but I
0: couldn't help no, it. Sorry. that's fine.
1: <laughs> I'll allow
0: it. I'll allow it. And then how do you manage your work life balance or do you even believe what it? What
1: work life balance?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that might be the case.
1: I mean, especially cuz you know, not only there's a lot of work stuff, but there's the union stuff takes up an enormous amount of time as well. I've been trying to be more intentional about taking one weekend day, like either the Saturday or the Sunday and just not do any of it, trying or at least to do like the minimum trying to like get some time to clean the house and like do some yoga or see friends or like have a life. I've been working on that.
0: And then is Twitter important to you?
1: Uh, Yes, probably more than it should be because God damn, it's such a time suck. But at the same time, it's a really good way to, I guess, not only promote your work, but also connect with people who are in the universe of things that I'm covering. If that makes sense. Like it's just another venue to get that kind of audience, which is important to me.
0: And then if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be?
1: This is a tricky one. So a journalist who I admire greatly, have admired her career, would be Martha Gellhorn. You familiar with her? like an actual foreign correspondent, unlike me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, she covered uh, World War II, was it, or something that she she was most famous for?
1: She covered every major global conflict from the Spanish Civil War all the way through to, like, the Falklands. I mean, decades and decades and decades. She stowed away on a Red Cross ship to cover the invasion of Normandy because they wouldn't let her officially become a correspondent. I don't feel the kind of pull to go overseas. But I admire so greatly her commitment, I guess, to telling stories of conflict and of violence in a very human way.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. Nobody's mentioned her before on the program, but I've obviously heard of her. And I know she is a big deal in war reporting or was a big deal in war reporting historically. And then what do you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist?
1: At least I like to think that I am very methodical in trying to understand the processes and the underpinnings of whatever kind of system that I'm covering, if that makes sense, like the procedural stuff, I make sure to take care to get a handle on all of that before I do anything. I guess colloquially, you could say like I prioritize learning the language of wherever I'm going or whatever I'm covering. I think that goes a long way towards sourcing. I think that goes a long way towards building a foundation to draw on when you're doing even just quick hit daily stories.
0: What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self?
1: Oh, God, I just say got to learn to be a lot more assertive, a lot more quickly. I don't know, maybe there isn't really a way to earn confidence except the hard way, but I wish I had developed that a lot earlier on. Just be a lot less scared. That's what I I advise my younger
0: self. And then what is one thing most people don't know about you?
1: I am an excellent fucking cook. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that. Not a lot of people know that about me. And I, these days especially, have not really had the time to put that stuff together. But man, when I'm in my game, I can really cook.
0: That's good. Yeah, no, I love to cook and it's a good way to unwind. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media, property, whatever medium, about journalists? So kind of a meta work about journalists and why?
1: His Girl Friday, (laughs) my favorite movie of all time. I mean, on the surface, right, it's just like this is a funny, giddy, just sharp kind of movie. It happens to be about journalists, so that brings it to another level for me. But it's also – it doesn't automatically assume that these journalists are actually heroes. Like, it comes out at the very beginning and says, like, hey, these people are going to do some real, like, unethical shit. (laughs) Just a heads up. Like, they're not actually all that (laughs) heroic. Which is absolutely true. Absolutely true. But you can't help but get swept up and kind of root for them as they chase this fucking story. I love that. It's also about a woman who rejects a nice, steady relationship with a nice, steady man in favor of her newspaper job, which explains a lot of my love life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've never actually seen it. I mean, it's obviously super famous, so I will have to sit down and do that.
1: Um, Well, spoiler alert, she rejects the nice, steady man man and the nice, steady personal life to to cover Cook County criminal courts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is it actually set in Chicago?
1: There's some dispute about that. I think yes. I think most signs (laughs) point to yes, but... There are a couple throwaway lines that may say maybe New York. This has been a point of much discussion among people who like that
0: movie. Okay. And then the final question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do?
1: I always kind of thought I would do well in some kind of medical field. I don't want to say that I like the blood and guts, but I've got a good stomach for it. And that's the kind of field where you're unambiguously helping people or trying and i do have a fascination for kind of the anatomy of it kind of like we talked about earlier right you get the entire range of
0: human experience under one roof okay cool well yeah that's all my questions so yeah thanks a lot for coming on the podcast
1: yeah thank you for having me
0: that's our show Thanks for listening to my conversation with Megan Cropot, a courts reporter for the Chicago Tribune. I'll post links to some of Megan's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would also be a huge help if you write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at pod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the show, please recommend it to them. The podcast is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, May 31st. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.